Good morning. It's a good reminder when we sing that song that the whole point of creation itself, the whole point of the universe, is that last verse where Jesus is sitting enthroned in the New Jerusalem and God's people are around him praising him. We get to be with God forever. That is the point of all things that we're going to consider today together how Jesus Christ did, in fact, 2,000 years ago, conquer death forever on behalf of all of his people. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help before we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you this morning as people who are perishing. Our bodies are failing us, some more rapidly than others. Death may be closer for some than others in this room, but it will come for us all. And we know that the physical death that we experience is only a symptom of a greater problem. And that's the fact that we are fallen, that we are sinners, and that in Adam, we have been corrupted in every way. God, we pray that you would come, be good, be merciful, be faithful to us as you always are. You have overcome our sin and corruption. You have overcome death for us. You have satisfied your own justice in the suffering of Jesus in our place. And so, Father, we're now called by your name. Come and minister to us as we look to your word, and we pray that we would be convinced that we are sinners, that we would be convinced that you are the only true God, and that we would be convinced that Jesus is the only one and living Savior. We pray as we behold him that we would be changed. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So one thing that I don't like doing very much is talking in superlatives. You know, people ask you these kinds of questions all the time. Like, what's your favorite, da, da, da. what's your favorite movie, what's your favorite song, what's your favorite whatever? And I'm always like, man, I, I have a hard time answering that because to think of one thing that's greater than everything else is just kind of hard. It kind of breaks my brain. I don't know what to say. One of my daughters talks in superlatives all the time. Like everything is literally her favorite. You know, every pair of pajamas she puts on every single night is her favorite set of pajamas, you know? And we're like, well, that's the first time you said that since yesterday, right? But as much as I don't like talking in superlatives, I'm about to do it right now. Arguably, the two most important questions that you could ever consider are these. Number one, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Number two, is he dead? Number one, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Number two, is he dead? So I hope you're interested. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. We're going to look together at the very end of Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 is what we're going to be considering today. While you're turning there, I want to give a few words on the ending of Mark's gospel. So if you open your Bibles, you might not be able to see this on the screen, but if you have a Bible in front of you, you will notice that there are 20 verses printed in your English Bible, most likely. And verses 9 through 20 are surrounded by all these brackets. And there are all these notes about the text that let us know that the majority of the earliest manuscripts did not actually contain these words. But there have been some versions of Scripture through history that have contained these words. And so they're in many of our English versions. I'm going to talk for just a few minutes before we go to the text itself. So there's a huge difference between preaching and a seminary lecture. Amen, somebody. And so this is not a seminary classroom. And at the same time, I love you and I love our church and I want us to be informed. Because whenever you start talking to people about the Bible, 
one of the first things that they're going to tell you is, well, that's just a collection of documents written by human beings in their best attempt to understand God. How accurate is it anyway? It had to be copied over and over and over again through centuries so that we even have what we have now. There are mistakes all in it. You're going to hear that. And so let's consider this together. The New Testament. So this is a an empirically verifiable fact. The New Testament is the most attested ancient document in the history of human civilization, and it's not even close. Not even close. So, like, think of all the great works and the classics that you love and I love that were taught in school, right, that we read in school as legitimate. The New Testament, literally hundreds of times the manuscripts that we have of something like Homer's Iliad. Thousands of times some of these manuscripts that we have. There are thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament that we have from the early centuries of the church on into later centuries. There are, with all of those various manuscripts and all the copying that had to be done over hundreds of years, there are incredibly few variants in the New Testament text. There are only two of significance, this being the most significant one. The other is in John's Gospel, chapter 7 and 8. And the few variants that there are have been identified and they have been rigorously studied and criticized, right? So when you think about this, you should be encouraged that the church and scholars who are both Christians and non-Christian scholars have studied these texts and have analyzed and critiqued them heavily. So it's not as though the church is running from any of these textual variants that do exist. We're approaching them with eyes wide open, assessing all of the documents we have to determine what was original to the New Testament manuscripts. The Bible's accuracy in terms of textual transmission over the course of hundreds of years is not only astonishing, friends, it's miraculous. It is miraculous. The hand of God is all over it in terms of how it has been preserved so accurately. So I'm going to go ahead and lay my cards out on the table. I, in my study... And there are, there are differing opinions on this, right? The majority opinion, certainly in our day, is that the real actual ending of Mark's gospel is chapter 16 and verse 8, not verse 20. The majority of the earliest and best manuscripts of Mark's gospel end at verse 8. And even in the original language, it reads different, beginning in verse 9 through 20, as it does prior. Now, we have longer endings of other Gospels. So we have Matthew's account. We have Luke's account. We have John's account. So it's not as though we don't have information after what Mark gives us. Of course, we do. And we hold all of those Gospel accounts together to understand the life in the ministry of Christ. So, a comfort to you, just a final parting shot. Under God's providence, biblical scholarship has not shied away from these questions at all. And given the vast attestation of the New Testament documents, even liberal and non-Christian scholars agree that this text that you hold in your hands is accurate. Now, whether or not people believe it is a whole other question. The words are accurate. You can trust your Bibles as you read them. But we will be considering today verses 1 through 8 of Mark chapter 16. So thus concludes that piece. Now we're going to look to the text and read it together. Beginning in Mark chapter 16 and verse 1. And you can ask me any questions that you have about that after the service at that door. Now everybody can look back down. Great. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, 
who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I've got four parts for this message today. Four parts. Part one is the passage itself. Parts two through four will be unpacking the main point of the passage. So part one, the passage. We're going to look at it together, just walk through it, understand it, make some observations about it. In verses one to two, you guys... Many were here last week. Many are familiar with the story. Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross outside of the city of Jerusalem. He died on a Friday afternoon. He was taken down from the cross, and he was laid in a tomb. It was cut into the side of a rock, and a big rock stone was rolled at the entrance of the tomb, and that's where we were. So now, it's Friday night. At that point, Friday night, the Sabbath begins. From sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday is the Sabbath. So we can look at verses 1 and 2 and see that when the Sabbath was passed, meaning that the sun has gone down on Saturday, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, those are three of the women who had witnessed the crucifixion. Two of them had actually also seen where Jesus was laid. They could not do work or go buy spices during the Sabbath, but once the Sabbath is over on Saturday evening, they buy spices so that they might go and anoint the body of Jesus. And then in verse 2, we see that very early on the first day of the week, they make their way to the tomb. So it's Sunday morning is when they're headed that way. Sunday, many in the room may realize, Sunday has been referred to as the Lord's Day since the very early centuries of the church, since the middle of the first century, even. We'll even read later on in the New Testament documents, Sunday referred to as the Lord's Day. The reason it's called the Lord's Day is because it is the day that Jesus got up from the dead. There is a reason also why Christians through history gather on Sunday morning for worship. It started right away. Sunday morning, we gather weekly for worship. Why? Because that's when Jesus got up from the dead. And so that's, I sometimes am, am punchy about stuff, and you guys love me, so you tolerate me in this. But this is why we really, in every good way I could mean it, don't make a huge deal about like Easter Sunday or the liturgical calendar in this church, because we understand biblically and historically, we are celebrating and heralding the life, the death, and the resurrection, the ascension, and the imminent return of Jesus every time we get together. Every single Lord's Day, we're proclaiming that he's not dead anymore, that he got up from the grave, and that's changed everything. Back to the text. So in verses 3 and 4, we see that the women are talking as they go. There's a lot going on, right? I mean, this has been a heck of a few days, right? And they're going to the tomb, and they're even probably wrestling in their minds. They're thinking about stuff. They're absorbed in thought. And then they realize on their way, like, who's going to roll that big stone away? Right? That's a big rock. I mean, how are we going to get that thing moved? You see that there in verse 3. And then they look up as they approach the tomb, 
and they see that the stone has been rolled back. And Mark, just to remind us, says it was big. So something's up, right? It's not normal. Verse 5, the women enter the tomb, and they see an angel, right? They see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. In the other gospel accounts, they're even more explicit. They saw an angel. And they're afraid. Like we thought about even, I say this all the time. Like when you see angels, when you think angel reading your Bible, do not think precious moments because it is not that. It is frightening when people encounter angels in scripture. And so they walk in, not knowing what to expect and encounter this angel and they are alarmed. Then the angel in verse six, you can see, seeks to comfort them and then is going to give them some incredible news. He says, don't be alarmed, don't be afraid. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. And then he tells them, he's risen from the dead. He's not here. He's not here. You're looking for Jesus. You're not going to find him here. You can look right over there in the place where they laid him. He's not there. And then verse 7, he gives the women some instructions. He says, go, tell Christ's disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee and that you'll see him there just as he said that you would. A couple of things on verse 7. The specific mention of Peter is sweet. If you've been here for the sermons through the latter portion of Mark's gospel, especially as we've got to the last day or so of Christ's life, you'll be familiar, you'll remember from just recent weeks how Peter denied Jesus three times on Christ, excuse me, last night on earth. Jesus told Peter that he would do that. He said, you're going to all fall away. But then Peter objected. Well, Lord, if even everybody else does, I'm not going to do it. And he says, Peter, you're going to do it three times tonight. And of course, it transpires as Christ had said. Peter would deny Jesus three times the final night that Christ was alive. Peter was broken down and weeping in chapter 15 even. We looked at that together. But here we see in these words, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee and you'll see him there. We see yet again how the mercy of Christ is greater than Peter's denial. The mercy and love of Christ for Peter is greater than Peter's sin and denial of Christ. Peter would be restored. But secondly, we also see that Jesus is going to Galilee and that you will see him just as he told you you would. So Christ has been calling his shot over and over and over again. Right? He's been saying, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise again. And then he had told his disciples even more specifically that after I die and have risen again, I'm going to go before you to Galilee and you'll see me there. When had he said that? He had said that in chapter 14, verses 26 through 28. And when they had sung a hymn, this was right after the Last Supper, right? And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, the 11, right? Judas has already left the scene. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you 
to Galilee. We see the deity of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ, the foreknowledge of Christ manifest itself all over the gospel accounts and here again. He predicts everything that would happen with respect to his suffering and his death. He predicts the scattering of the disciples. He predicts Peter's denial of him. He predicts that he would rise from the dead and even tells his disciples how it will go down after he's resurrected. And it all happens. But even in this piece, we thought about the grace and mercy of Christ toward Peter. We should not overlook the grace of Christ toward all of them. They all had scattered. They all had abandoned Jesus. But his love and faithfulness toward them is unshakable. His grace is greater than their weakness and their unbelief. They would leave and abandon him, but he promised them, I'm getting up from the dead and you're going to see me again. Verse 8. The women are overcome, understandably, by everything that's going on. They went out, they leave the tomb. Trembling and astonishment had seized them. No kidding. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. On the way that Mark's gospel ends, sometimes people look at this and they're like, man, that's kind of an abrupt ending. Sort of surprising even. But in ending his gospel this way, what was Mark communicating? What's he communicating? He's communicating that the disciples, which would include his followers, these women, right? They're about to go report to the 11. These women had been with him. They had followed him as well. The disciples, none of them, right? In spite of everything that Jesus had taught them, none of them were expecting the resurrection. Like that's what we should see in the reaction to the resurrection that you see in all of the gospel accounts. It's astonishment and bewilderment. The disciples have, after Christ dies, they're all kind of hanging out together, despairing, because Jesus is dead. It's over. So we see that even here in the case of these women, that they're astonished at what's going on. They were stunned by everything as it's unfolding. There are a number of marks of authenticity in the gospel accounts. That's one of them. Right? We'll talk, what I mean by that is when you read these accounts, they do not flatter the people who would literally start the church. They do not flatter and uphold the 11, these women, any of the people who would be pillars in the early church. None of them are exalted. All of them, in one sense, are humiliated because of their lack of faith, their unbelief, their weakness, their frailty, right? It's because this book is not about right, the strength of God's people. It's about the faithfulness of God. It's about the mercy and grace of God. It's about the power of God to overcome the weakness and the sin of his people to accomplish all of his purposes. It's another demonstration, the fact that none of the disciples were expecting the resurrection. It's a further demonstration that God's word tells us that the history of God's people is not one of rock-solid faith. And it's not one of just unshakable faithfulness and obedience. The history of God's people, as it has been revealed from the beginning of this big book to the end, is a history of a gracious God saving a sinful people. 
It's a history of a perfect Christ rescuing very corrupt, very weak, very frail people. So what's going on? As you look at this passage and you look at any passage of Scripture, a good question to ask is, what's the main point of all this? What's the main point of this? It's very clear that the main point of our passage today is that Jesus got up from the dead. Do you see that just as easily as I do? So now what we're going to do for the rest of our time together is consider the significance of that reality. Why is that a big deal, that Jesus got up from the dead? And then we're going to think about some of its implications. So we're going to move on to part two of our four parts. Part two is the significance of the resurrection. So if you're sitting there and you're like, okay, cool, I think I believe this, that Jesus got up from the dead. Help me, bro, understand why this is such a big deal for me. As I sit here in the 21st century and I'm living life, help me. Number one, the significance of the resurrection. It's a big deal because the resurrection was the vindication of Jesus and his sacrifice. That was prayed already today. It's been said today. The resurrection was the vindication of Jesus and his sacrifice. Quite simply, it proved that Jesus was legit. Given the claims that Jesus had made in his earthly ministry, had he not gotten up from the dead, he would have been exposed as a fraud. At best, had he remained dead, at best, Jesus is certifiably insane. And at worst, he is from hell. I don't know if you've thought about it like that. If Jesus did not get up from the dead, he's at best a crazy person. And at worst, he is the devil, deceiving everyone, blaspheming God. There's no middle ground. It's just like the gospel, right? There's no middle ground. It's either Christ's works or your works, his faithfulness or your obedience. It's not... Both and, it's either or. It's all or nothing. Jesus can't be just this great teacher guy. He can't be this just outstanding moral figure. It won't hold based on the things that he claimed about himself. But as we move forward, even more significant than than just proving that he was legitimate, his resurrection proved that his sacrifice was sufficient to accomplish the redemption of God's people. God the Father looked upon what God the Son had done and said, it's enough. It's sufficient. The price has been paid. No more is owed at all. My justice satisfied. My righteous wrath against evil satisfied. All of the righteousness and good works that anybody, all the people of God would ever need, accomplished. It's over. He says, yes, son, what you have done is perfect. It's excellent. It's sufficient. It's enough. Rise. And it's also true. So Jesus will use language both of being raised by the Father and also of taking his own life up again. Both are true. The Father is God and the Son is God. Imagine the scene in heaven at the death of Christ, and at his cry, it is finished. Talk about an amen resounding. And then imagine the scene in heaven at the resurrection. All of history has been coming to this. 
All of eternity has been coming to this. And now the Christ, the Son of God, has risen victorious and he will reign forever. The Father has always been well pleased with the Son. And he was well pleased with his Son's sacrifice. That's made clear in the fact that Jesus got up from the grave. The message of the apostles, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, who came and lived and died and rose again to save all of God's people. It's quite simple. Jesus is the Christ who came and lived and died and was raised in order to save all of God's people. Let's consider the testimony of the apostles about Jesus and his resurrection. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at a few other passages of Scripture. Our text today is quite short, and so we're going to be able to look to other passages in Scripture to kind of flesh this out for us even more. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and following. The verses will be on the screen, so no worries if you don't have your Bible in front of you. This is Peter's sermon at the day known as Pentecost, when Jesus has ascended to heaven, and now the Holy Spirit has been given to God's people, to Christ's followers. Peter stands up in the midst of of a Jewish assembly and is going to preach, in one sense, the first Christian sermon ever recorded. Here he goes. Verse 22 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You killed him. God, verse 24, raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death couldn't hold him. We sang that earlier. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter was just quoting Psalm 16. Now he's going to go back to his words to this assembly. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, the man who wrote that psalm, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. David wasn't talking about himself. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He has given us the Holy Spirit, just like the prophet said that he would. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, the Christ, sit at my right hand. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Praise be to his name. Acts chapter 13, we're going to listen to Paul now on Jesus and his 
resurrection and what it means and signifies. Acts 13 and verse 16. So this is Paul speaking in the synagogue in Antioch. Paul stood up and motions with his hand. He's about to speak. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with uplifted army led them out of it. He's talking about the Exodus, right? And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. The promised land was given to them. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when God, he, God, had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all I will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised, the son of David, right? Before his coming, John John the Baptist, right, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, meaning I am not the Messiah. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Paul goes on. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. They condemned Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Do not overlook that. What God has always promised to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he has now fulfilled to us their offspring, right? By raising Christ from the dead. It's accomplished. It's done. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. He's citing some of the same things that Peter had, right? For David, this is excellent right here. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David's just like you and me. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And then these two verses. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. This right here, verses 38 and 39, I mean, what I've just read, is a phenomenal like, sermon and lesson on the history of redemption and how Christ is the point of it all. And now the gospel is this word in verses 38 and 39. 
Know now, therefore, brothers and sisters, that through this man, Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You're a wretch, just like me. You're a sinner, right? And you are really forgiven because of Christ. The work is done. Forgiveness accomplished. And then in verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you couldn't be freed by the law of Moses. The law only condemns you because you can't keep it. It's perfect and holy and good and incredible and awesome, and you can't do it. And now the law, which could never save you, right? you have been set free from it in that Jesus has done it for you. And everything that God ever required is done in him. So in Christ, as the pinnacle and the fulfillment of all of redemptive history, there is forgiveness of sins and there is perfect righteousness. That's the gospel. Believe in Christ. This is the witness of the apostles. It's remarkable how they understood redemptive history. It's how we should understand redemptive history. It sounds insane for a human being to be able to stand up and pronounce the forgiveness of sins. If that doesn't shock you, then you might want to check your pulse because it's like there's real evil committed by all kinds of human beings there's real evil that we have done. There's real evil that we want to do. Like We're really guilty. And then to say, you and you and you and I am forgiven. That's scandal in the eyes of a world that is merciless. All you got to do is look at the newspaper, look at your Twitter feed. I mean, cancel culture is real, right? I mean, like you, you say one wrong thing, you do one wrong thing. You were loved a second ago. You're written off forever now. Forgiveness doesn't exist in the world like this. This is a shocking message. People who are really, really guilty are really, really forgiven. Not because of anything that they have done. Not because of penance that they have done. But because of Christ and what he did. But secondly, the significance of the resurrection. So as if that's not enough, right? You're forgiven and you're counted righteous because Jesus got it from the dead. Second the significance of the resurrection, it was the guarantee of our eternal life through our union with Jesus. I'm going to say that again. It was the guarantee of our eternal life through our union with Jesus. So death, as it's described in Scripture, is the last and great enemy of people. Some in this room might be very afraid of dying. Others might not be as afraid of dying. And yet death is sobering and terrifying if we look it in the face. There's a reason why in our society we do everything we can to avoid talking about it. We do everything that we can to stay young. We do everything we can to just kind of keep it over there. We don't talk much about it. We don't even want to call funerals funerals. We want to call them celebration of life. Like we won't talk about death. Why? Because it is terrifying and it is horrible because we were not made to die. Right? When we die... The physical and the spiritual part of us are ripped apart. It is unnatural. So when people are like, oh, well, you know, death's a part of life. That's true after sin entered the world. It was not that way originally. That's why it hurts so much. And that's why it's so terrifying. But 2,000 years ago, on a Sunday morning, Jesus crushed death. He crushed it. He got into the ring with death, so to speak, and won. He's the only person to ever do that. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15. We read it earlier. We're going to look at other verses from it today. Beginning in verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes these words, thinking about the significance of what Christ did and getting up from the dead and what that means for us. Now, if Christ, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Brief word of context, there are people in the church of Corinth denying that people are raised from the dead, and Paul is kind of mocking them for that in a number of ways. I mean, even later, he's going to say, there are some of you who are being baptized on behalf of the dead, as crazy as that is, but why would you even do that if you don't think the dead are raised, right? So he's getting at them. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ is still dead, we're wasting our time. Verse 15, if we are even, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if it's true that the dead aren't raised. We're lying. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You're damned still. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished forever. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you ever leave this church and go look for another one, make sure that you assess it. Do not ever join a church that is earthbound in everything it talks about. If everything is about this life and how it can go better for you, run away. It's not Christian right? Like Christianity, biblically speaking, yes, your life will change now because God is gracious and merciful, but it is always about the eternal promises of God in Jesus and what we have been delivered from then forever. And that affects life now, but it is not about making your life easier or better today. It's not even about making your marriage better. If that's what all the sermons are about, don't touch it. All right, back Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's just stated, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam. By a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. And then verse 22, what a great summary. For as in Adam, all die. Naturally, we die. In Adam, we die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Everybody who is in Adam, that's all humans, will die Everybody who's in Christ by faith will live forever. Very simple, very straightforward. You'll die physically. You will live forever in every way that matters. You'll be resurrected. You'll have a body. You'll be with God forever and with each other forever, and it's going to be epic. Your days now might not be epic. Most of them are mundane, but epic is coming, brothers and sisters. Hold on, right? Now, we're going to go into part three because I love you and I want to try to progress here. Part three is a meditation. Now, I'm giving it a weird title. Just write it down and listen to me, and I hope it will make sense. All right, it's meditation on Genesis 3, Ecclesiastes, and the resurrection. Genesis 3, Ecclesiastes, and the resurrection. Genesis 3, for those who might not be as familiar with the Bible, is the chapter in which sin enters the world. It's all wrecked. Everything was good and great and perfect, and then sin, and it's all changed. Everything is subjected to the curse the creation is groaning to be liberated, and so are we. Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. It's a book in the Old Testament. And it's a very honest book about life under the sun in a fallen world, about how there so often is a futility to this life. 
And everybody sitting in the seats is like, well, yeah, that's, that's true. Like, how often is your life hard? How often do you experience stress? A lot, right? How often does difficulty find its way to you? How often do you get sick? How often is your job hard? How often is your family life difficult? How often is there relational stress and strife in your life? How often are you battling your own desires because you want to do stuff that you know is whack, but it's still there and you can't escape it? It's your life. It's mine too, right? So our lives are often hard. We suffer. And our pain, here's the thing that's hard for us. Our pain so often feels meaningless. It feels meaningless. Like what's the point of all this hurting and all this suffering? That's Ecclesiastes. That's the book. Why I'm toiling and I'm toiling and I'm working and I'm striving for what at times seems like no fruit. One way to put it, in terms of the state of the world under sin, we live in a world where we bury our children. We live in a world where we bury our children. Only an insane person would look around and say that things are as they should be. Seriously. Like Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world. Yeah, I get it, bro. It's beautiful. God has made everything good. Right? It's fallen, it's marred, but it's still pretty epic in a lot of ways, and it's great. But we live in a world where we bury our kids sometimes. It is not right. It's not as it should be. Death comes for us all. Disease and chronic pain. Addiction and bondage of all kinds. Depression, despair, hopelessness. People even ending their own lives because they can't take it anymore. Relationships that are constantly fraught with difficulty. Marriages falling apart. Only an insane person would look around and say, things are okay. They're not okay. And here's the thing. In Christ, because he got up from the dead, none of that is in vain. Nothing is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, again, the last few verses of this chapter speak to this directly. Beginning in verse 50, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, and by sleep he means die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written in Isaiah chapter 25, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? It can feel futile. It can feel like it's in vain. It can feel like I'm spinning my wheels and I'm not seeing fruit in my own life. I'm not seeing fruit in other places that I would like to see it. 
But beloved brothers and sisters, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because Jesus got up from the dead and will be with him forever. That's why. God's eternal, unshakable promises that are for eternity affect life now. We live from the end of the story backwards. Things now will be hard sometimes, no doubt. Some things, this sounds hopeless to people, but it's true. Some things might not get better in this life. You got to own that. Like if you're, if you're a believer because you think that progress is going to be the name of the game for the rest of your days on earth, it will not always be that way. Some things will not get better in this life. They might get worse, actually. This is clearly a message to make the church get huge, right? Like, but it's true. We need to love one another enough to say that from the scripture, that things are hard and they might not always get better. And still, in the face of that, we have a real and a living hope. His name is Jesus Christ. And all of our striving and all of our working, all of our loving each other, in all of our praying and all of our trusting of Christ is never in vain because he's not dead anymore. Part four. This is our conclusion. Part four. Christ's resurrection means we're safe. So this is how we're ending Mark's gospel. Christ's resurrection means we're safe. And I don't know if you came in this morning thinking, that you don't feel safe. But this is a word, whether we realize it or not, whether it's on the front of our minds or not, this is the kind of word we need every Sunday. You're safe in Christ. Jesus was delivered up, Romans 4.25, was delivered up for our trespasses, our sins, and he was raised for our justification. In Christ's sacrifice being vindicated, our salvation in him has been confirmed and vindicated for all time. So when Christ got up from the dead, that's the stamp. It's the marker. It's the seal. All those who would ever trust in Him will be saved forever. It's because what He did was sufficient, as we thought about even earlier. There is no need for anyone or anything else to do anything because Christ has done it. We are safe in Christ because Jesus lives forever. And in living forever, this makes him the greatest savior, the greatest high priest that we could have. The writer of the Hebrews makes it very clear. Chapter 7, verses 23 and following. The former priests were many in number. He's talking about all the high priests through the history of Israel. They were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They needed a lot of priests, Israel did, because all of them died. So when one priest would die, there needed to be another one that would take his place so that atonement could be made once a year, right? We thought about that last week. And then sacrifices could be executed perpetually. But then back to Jesus. All these other priests died, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. What does that mean? 
He tells us, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. The fact that Jesus is alive and at the right hand of the throne of God means you're safe because he doesn't sit there idle. He sits there praying and interceding for you. And he will never fail you. Everyone else that you know will fail you. Christ never will. He means for you to be with him. He means for you to be saved forever. And you will be because he doesn't fail. We're safe because he is at the right hand of the Father, because he is alive and he is reigning. Romans 8, verse 31 and following. Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? The hope of the resurrection. That's what he's just been talking about in chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? Like Paul, these are some phenomenal promises, dude. What should we say? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He will graciously give us all things. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, no one, because it's God who has justified them. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Satan, the great accuser, or man, or angels, anybody. Who is to condemn? He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Nobody's going to condemn you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, nobody or nothing will ever do that. Paul, what do we make of these promises? It's that God has meant to save you. He'll graciously give you everything in Christ. He has blessed you in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1. He has meant to save you and he will. Nobody can bring a charge against you because God has justified you. Nobody can condemn you because Christ died for you and he's alive now and he's at the right hand of God interceding for you and no one will ever separate you from the love of Jesus. Finally, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. We're going to think again about Jesus being alive and what all that means for us as compared to these other priests because he's better than all of them. The point of the letter to the Hebrews is that Jesus is greater than everything. And don't neglect such a great salvation by going back to the law. That's what the book is about. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that came before him. Chapter 10 and verse 11. And every priest, the old kind, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So what was going on in all of that? The sacrificial system existed because Jesus was coming and would be the sacrifice to save God's people. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. That's a strong statement. Christ had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. And it was so sufficient that he sat down afterwards. It's over. He's sitting at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, which will happen consummatively at the end of history. 
Verse 14, how sufficient is that single offering? It's pretty, pretty sufficient. Here it is. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's a life verse if I've ever heard one. That's refrigerator worthy. Biblically speaking, we can say about salvation these things, that you have been saved, that you are being saved, and that you will be saved. All of those are right to say. It's also right to say, in this sense, that you have been justified. You have been declared righteous. You've been reconciled to God. You are being sanctified, transformed by the Spirit of God in you. And you will be glorified, raised imperishable. And all of those things are certain. You see, in our, in our brains, this is what we do. We think that if anything is in the future, it's not certain. That's how we think. Because when I've thought about why people object so much to the fact that it really is done and that Jesus has accomplished it and all that's left to do is trust him, the reason people object to it is because it's like, well, there's all this language about things that are going to happen in the future. And in our brains, it's like, okay, well, that means that there's still something that's got to be done. Not true. Our final and future salvation is already secured. It was secured in one sense before the world began, but it absolutely was secured 2,000 years ago when Jesus died and got up. All of it is certain because the language of the Bible is that by faith we have been united to Christ. We are in union with Him. So he will see to it that you are saved finally and that I am saved finally. We have no confidence in ourselves. We should never misconstrue this. I think, I think it's pretty clear. I was listening to even McKenzie welcome us to church this morning and I rejoiced in it because I thought, you know, even if people come in and don't understand everything, I, I think it's pretty clear that we have no confidence in us and that's appropriate. We should have zero confidence in ourselves and complete confidence and hope in Christ. It's the posture of the redeemed. Christ's work is sufficient. He is enough and we are safe because of what he's done. That's good news. Close with the words that we sang earlier. See the empty tomb today. Death could not contain him. Once the servant of the world, now in victory reigning. And then lift your voices to the one who is seated on the throne. See him in the new Jerusalem. Praise the one who saved us. And we will forever because of what he's done for us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us. Thank you for continuing to work in us by your spirit. Thank you for sustaining our faith. Thank you for growing us in love to you and to one another. We thank you and praise you that you overcome our sin and our weakness. You overcome our unbelief. And we thank you most of all for what Christ has done for us and for the fact that we really are safe. We pray that you would help us to believe that and know that in our hearts and our minds. And we pray that as we encounter life in its ups and downs, its good and bad, in the victories and in the trials, we pray that we would be mindful 
of the fact that everything is ultimately good because we are good with you in Christ and we will be with you forever. We pray that that knowledge would help us as we continue to lock arms together and, and walk through this life. So we pray now as we come to the table that you would continue to minister to us, remind us anew in the bread and in the juice of what Christ has done in giving his life for us. Sustain and confirm our faith, comfort and strengthen us as your children. Continue to knit our hearts together as the body of Christ. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.